welcome to New Life Lutheran Podcast, where new life in Christ is celebrated and we explore together how to live the Christian life with excellence. Thanks for listening today. You can find our podcast at nllutheranpodcast.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play Music. If you have any questions for Pastor Eric or would like to suggest topics for our podcast, you can email Pastor Eric at erik.anderson at nllutheran.com. Let's jump into our uh, passage this morning. This morning we are going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 6. And uh, as I was reading it this morning, you may have thought, wait a second, didn't we do that passage last week? And yes and no. Uh, We are actually looking at the first part of chapter 6 this week. Last week, Pastor Ben looked at the second half of chapter 6. So there is a little bit of overlap, uh, but there are two separate teachings, two separate portions, um, and I think that this week the Lord has uh, a very good word for us this morning. Well, as you know, uh, as I mentioned before, it is Advent, so as you walked into the church, you saw that uh, we have our Christmas decorations up. Thank you to all the families who came and helped with that. Really, really appreciate it. As it seems like this happens every year, uh, that when we first put up the decorations, there are always some things that get a little, little shifted, they don't quite settle right, and one of the things that you may have noticed is this star up here that's almost completely sideways. So we're actually taking bets. There's an over or under if it's going to fall or not. So go ahead. You can let me know if you want the over or the under. You may walk away with some money this morning if it falls over. So, so far, so good. It hasn't fallen yet, but it might this morning. So, but anyway, thank you for all the families who have come and helped set up throughout the week. Um, that was invaluable service, and uh, our church is even more beautiful than it normally is during this time of the year. Well, we are finishing our sermon series as we enter into this Advent time we're finishing our sermon series called I Promise. And over the last four weeks, we've been exploring some promises that God gives us and some of the implications that they have for us. We started way back, it seems like forever ago, back at the first week, the first weekend in November, which is right at the election, right in the heat of the election season. And we started off by examining, uh, you know, the promises of man and the promises of God. And then we walked through November and we began to talk about, as we got closer to Thanksgiving, we began to talk about how we can cultivate generosity and thanksgiving in our lives. And so the conversation turned a lot toward what we, the language that we've been using is provisions, that God provides for us. He gives us provisions. He promises to give us provisions. And last week we talked specifically about wealth and about income. And Pastor Ben did a great job of expanding that out and opening up um, to draw out some really good wisdom. Uh, But last week we talked specifically about wealth and money and income. And with all this talk about provisions, I know that it's tempting for us to only think about it in terms of money and assets and what we actually physically have in our hands. Uh, But there's a definition of provisions that we've been working with the last five weeks, and that is your time, like your actual time here on earth to serve and love others. Your talents, the gifts that God has given you, uh, or yeah, your time, your talent, the gifts, the spiritual gifts, and the abilities that God has given you to serve others, and your resources, which is that, you know, the actual assets that you have that you can leverage for the good of others. And here's the reality, is that some of us 
have more provision than others. Some of us have more time than others. Some of us have a lot more time than others. My oldest son is three years old. God willing, he will live to be an old man. He has a lot more time than I do, and I have a lot more time than some of you do. So some of us have more time. At the end of the day, some of us um, have uh, differing abilities that allow us to do things uh, maybe that are more uh, flashy or, or more impressive than others. And we all have different resources. We're provided with different resources. Uh, we like to joke sometimes that there's a spiritual gift of making money hand over fist, that there are some people who just whatever they touch just makes money. And so some of us have more resources and some of us have less resources. And so that, I know that maybe some of you have entered into these last four weeks and that's kind of been on your mind, that you feel like you don't have a lot of provisions or, or you, there's some tension there. And what we saw last week is that provision can kind of be a double-edged sword. That those who have a lot of resources, specifically in the teaching last week, that can actually be a detriment to spiritual health and spiritual vitality. And what we're going to see today is that provision, little provision or lots of provision, both ways can be a double-edged sword and that there's actually a better way that God leads us. So that's what we're going to hear today. So let's jump into this passage. We start off with the very first verse of chapter 6. Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters of worthy, as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. So we start off this passage with the not at all awkward or uncomfortable topic of slavery, right? And so when we think of slavery, we have a particular type of slavery in mind uh, that's part of our history that is, um, as, as Americans, as people from the New World, um, and particularly those of us of European descent, it's a, quite a shameful um, and evil part of our history. Um, and of course in our country, uh, much of it was built on the backs of slaves. And so it's something that we need to reckon with. Um, and it was an evil that in many ways we're still paying for. We're still having to work out and figure out how we move forward as a people group. So when we think about slavery, we have this particular kind of slavery in mind. It's called chattel slavery. And this is the slavery that we learned about in school. Uh, this was Europeans going down to Africa um, and buying slaves and bringing them over to the New World to work in the field and to work in plantations and agriculture. It's called chattel slavery, where human beings are treated like cattle or like property, and they're bought and sold for work. And they have particular value assigned to them. The slavery that we think about is specifically racist. It was white dudes enslaving black dudes and using them. That is what we think about when we think about slavery. In the ancient Roman times, that is not how they understood slavery. So when Paul says slavery here, it's not racist, it's not racial slavery. Okay, it's not race-based. These are Greek and Romans and, and uh, Turkish people enslaving other Greeks and Romans and Turkish people. This slavery was economic in nature. So oftentimes, this was a slavery that was voluntarily entered into. So for example, if you had a particular debt that you had to pay, you might enter into a contract with your debtor and say, I'm going to work for you for X amount of years or until I pay off my debt and then I'll be free. So when we hear slavery here in the scriptures, think more indentured servant, okay? So I don't want us to think about chattel slavery, which was a horrible evil, 
We're talking about indentured servitude, which is still not good, <laughs> okay? It's still not a good thing, but I want us to kind of remove the veil of our own um, uh, shame that, I mean, we really ought to have for the, our history and for what we've done um, to the African-American community, um, but this is not what he's talking about here. This passage was used by pastors, theologians, and slave owners to support slavery, chattel slavery. And that is not at all what is, hap- what is happening here. Um, in fact, as we read Paul's letters, um, it is my belief and I think it's my conviction as I read the text that as we read Paul's letters, there's actually this opening up and this expectation that slaves should be released, that debts should be free, that debts should be um, undone and people should be freed. There's one particular case uh, where Paul actually writes a letter to a slave owner about one of their slaves. And so he writes this letter, it's in our scripture, um, and so he writes this letter because this slave had run away, went to Paul, he sends him back to um, his owner, and then he writes to the owner, he says, hey, when, when Onesimus, that was the slave's name, when he comes back, you should treat him like a brother. And what are the implications of that? What do you, what do you not do to your brother? You don't enslave them, right? So the implications, I think, as Paul is writing, is that he expects even those who have to enter into contracts willingly to pay off debt should be treated with respect. So I think what Paul had in mind was this kind of freeing and opening up of um, this indentured servitude to probably something more like we experience today where I don't actually own my house, the bank owns my house, right? And I have to pay the bank back or they're gonna take my house away. So this is a more economic kind of servitude slavery. I just want to clarify that. But I want you to notice something here that Paul says, that he says that those who are under this indentured servitude, this slavery, they are to regard their masters as worthy of honor for the purpose that the name of God and the teaching may not be blasphemed. So he says that if you are in this situation where you have no resources, You have nothing to your name. You are under this contract. You're in this uh, system where you are serving somebody else. He says, if you you mistreat or if you disrespect those who are over you, you actually open up the gospel to uh, blasphemy. He's saying that's a danger. So he encourages those who are under the system to work hard and to honor their masters so that people will speak well of Christians. He says, God's name is on the line with how you are responding to this. He continues on. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful to them on the ground that they are members of the church. Rather, they must serve them all the more since those who benefit by their service are believers and are beloved. So here he kind of enhances this teaching. And again, unfortunately, this was used to subdue Africans and explain away slavery, which is not at all what is happening here. The point here is this is that in your work, even if you have no resources, God is doing something. And if you disrespect and dishonor those around you in your work, if you grow bitter and disrespectful toward those who are over you, you're actually damaging God's name. You're not, you're not carrying God's name correctly. You're not, you're not helping further the gospel. And so he's talking to these people who have no resource, and he says, hey, don't become bitter. Don't let your situation cause you to disrespect those who are over you. 
So he's talking to those who have absolutely nothing at this point. And then he continues on and he talks to a different group of people, or he talks about a different group of people now. He says, whoever teaches otherwise, so now he's talking about teachers, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that is in accordance with godliness is conceited. They understand nothing and has a morbid craving for controversy and for disputes about words. That is some, some strong language here. He's very, he does not like these people. So he's talking about now these false teachers. He says, all right, slaves, if you are under this institution, you work hard for your master, you honor them because that allows the gospel to be spread. And then he points out these false teachers. And he says, if people aren't teaching this, then they're conceited. They're all about themselves and they like to cause division. He's pointing out that there are these false teachers who think that they can gain some authority by causing divisions. And that's continued on in this. From these come envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, wrangling among those who are depraved in mind and bereft of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So there are these false teachers who behave and act as if the gospel in their own godliness is a way for them to gain resources and gain authority. Actually, in the back half of this of this chapter of chapter six, it's about these false teachers. It's about these individuals who are gaining lots and lots of resources. And we heard last week uh, what it is that they're supposed to do with that income, which of course is for the good of others, to be generous with it. So these false teachers are using the gospel for their personal and monetary gain. So we have these two groups of people. We have the people who have no resources, these slaves, these indentured servants, we have these false teachers who have lots and lots of resources and are continuing to gain and gobble up resources. And Paul is showing us that there are two threats here. It's a double-edged sword. Those of us who don't have a lot of resources, who maybe are living paycheck to paycheck, who maybe aren't getting paid as much as we should or as much as we could, it's easy to become bitter, isn't it? To become bitter toward our employers, bitter toward the bills, bitter toward even our own house and our own assets that we have to pay the mortgage every month and things keep breaking down and we have to keep fixing and repairing and paying for things. It's easy to become bitter. But of course, on the other side, if you gain and gain and gain and gobble up and consume wealth and resources, you endanger your soul, which is what we heard last week. So there's, there's trouble on both sides. That those who have none and those who have a lot can both kind of get into trouble because of it. He continues on. Of course, there is great gain in godliness combined with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so that we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. So now he introduces, there's some sort of middle ground here that we can meet. And the problem with um, those who don't have enough resources falling into sin and those who have too much resources falling into sin, the problem is that the, the, the amount of wealth or the lack of wealth that they have becomes their focus, doesn't it? It's hard to focus on God when you're so concerned about paying your car payment, isn't it? It's hard to focus on God when you're so concerned about your business making as much money as it can this quarter. When we're consumed by the provisions that God gives us, we don't, we're not content. We're never content. We either never have enough or we have so much that we don't know what to do with it 
and we begin to live lavishly and consume everything that we can. So Paul uses this word contentment to introduce the following uh, teaching. Again, unfortunately, this passage, this, this verse right here has been used to explain away slavery. And that's not at all what's going on here. Paul says, rich or poor, the circumstances that you are a part of, you can be not content when you have a lot of money or when you don't have enough money. If we focus on what we don't have or what we do have, we'll never be content. And so Paul shows another way, a third way. He writes this to Timothy, but as for you, man of God, shun all of this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So Paul exhorts Timothy with six things. He says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. He says, do these things. Righteousness is walking uprightly, walking correctly. Um, Godliness is this loving sacrifice that God has for us. Faith is trust and confidence in God. Love is a care for others. Endurance and gentleness, of course, are um, kind of self-explanatory. But all of these things are promised and are told to Timothy to pursue. And this passage is specifically for Timothy. It's written specifically for Timothy. But what we see is that these six things are promised in other scripture as well. So I have the cross-references here. We're not going to dive down into all six of them. But there are these six items that in other passages of scripture are promised not just to Timothy or to one person, but to everybody. And in fact, in these passages, it's not the the language that, that the writers use, that the Holy Spirit inspired the writers to use, is not so much, hey, you should try to do this. You should try to be righteous. You should try to be godly. The language is, you are righteous. You are godly. You have faith. Our faith is a gift. You have love. You have endurance. You have gentleness. The language of these is that of promise. So when Paul writes to Timothy to pursue these things, he's saying, pursue what you already have. Pursue the things that God has already promised you. Hang on to those things and cling on to those things. So these six things are told to Timothy to pursue in comparison or contrast to the bitterness of not having enough or the consumption of having too much. And I want you to notice all six of these things, they have nothing to do with circumstance. You can have lots of resources and also have these six things. You can have no resources and have these six things. These are the promises of God that he offers to us. In the midst of some of us not having enough, in the midst of some of us having too much, and I don't know why God decides that some will have skills and abilities to make lots of money, that some people won't have the skills and abilities that make lots of money. I don't know why God chooses some to uh, run great businesses. He chooses others to be on fixed incomes. I don't know why that is the case. But God does promise that whatever the circumstances are, he wants to transform you. He wants to transform your heart. He wants to transform your mind. 
He wants to change the way you think about the world, and he wants to change the way you engage in the world around you. In four weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas, which is a holiday where we remember and we worship God for coming to us as one of us. That when the Son was born of the Virgin Mary as a human being, God set into motion the completion of his plan. That he is going to redeem human beings and that he is going to redeem the entire world. God is on a mission to create a new heaven and a new earth where his people will live with him for eternity. That's what he's doing. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas is that he is instituting his kingdom. He is creating heaven on earth. He is creating little new creations on earth. That when we are baptized, when we die with Christ and we rise with him, we are this new creation. And we have these six things. God's on a mission to transform the world and he wants you to be part of it. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. That's the promise of the forgiveness of sin. So here's what, I, here's what we hear today. And here's my conviction for us this morning from this text. Is that God is not in the business of making you and I feel comfortable or feel happy. In fact, I suspect that he's really not even interested in making us feel comfortable or feel happy. Because as we read through scripture, we keep running into these characters who are dragged through the mud and God is with them the entire time. We read about Job. We read about Jonah. We read about Jesus. And you should ask Job if he was comfortable or happy. You should ask Jonah if he was comfortable or happy. You should ask Jesus if he was comfortable or happy. I'm not sure that God's actually all that interested in making us comfortable. What he's interested in doing is transforming us. He's interested in changing your heart and your mind. He wants you and he wants I to be part of his new creation. New kinds of humans where heaven and earth overlap. Where we operate out of righteousness and godliness and faith and love. Where we have endurance and gentleness in our life. God's not in the business of making us comfortable or happy. I'm not sure that he's all that interested in our retirement or our career or our kids' athletic careers or our house or our other assets. I don't think he's interested in stroking our egos and making us feel good about ourselves. That's not what God is in the business of doing. God is recreating the world. The train is moving. When Jesus came to earth, the train started moving. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here. The kingdom is here. So we continue on with this exhortation that Paul gives Timothy. Fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 
So here he gives two commands, two exhortations. The first one is fight the good fight. And this to us sounds like a military or, or, or war kind of metaphor, but it's actually a metaphor or, or a saying, I should say, that was about a- athletics. So it's what they would say about athletes as they would go into the places of competition, into the Colosseums, and they would exercise and they would get ready for competition. So they would go and they would run or they would throw a discus or they would wrestle, but they would go in and they would work out so that they can be prepared for uh, the competition that's coming up. That's what this means. Fight, fight the good fight of faith means exercise your faith. That's what he's kind of commanding uh, Timothy to do, what he's is, is exhorting Timothy to do. Um, and so a way to think about this is in our own lives, when it comes to fitness and health, um, there's a rule that if you don't use your muscles on a regular basis, they begin to atrophy, right? That if you don't move your joints and you work them out, they begin to get weaker and weaker and begin to break down. The, the rule of the exercise science and health is that the more you move, the longer you'll be able to move, right? So they say you continue to move and continue to work out as long as you can because if you do that, it actually, it has this like effect where you're actually able to continue to move longer. This year, I started going to 724 Fitness. Shout out Nick, hey, how you doing? Um, I started going to 724 Fitness because I realized earlier this year, it dawned on me that I'm almost 30 years old and I'm 110 pounds overweight. And my doctor says, Eric, you're okay right now, but 10 years from now, you won't be okay. And so I said, all right, I gotta take a couple years and gotta figure some things out, right? Because for the last 10 years since I was an athlete, I have not been working out my body the way that I should have and my body has atrophied. It's become unhealthy because I haven't been working it out the way that I should. And that's exactly what uh, Paul is telling Timothy here. You've been given the gift of faith, so you gotta work it out. And if we don't work out this faith, if we aren't exercising our faith, it's gonna atrophy, it's gonna slip away. It's a gift, just like our body is a gift, and the more we move, the more dynamic we are with it, the longer it'll move and the longer it can be dynamic. And then he also says this, take hold of the eternal life. And again, this is this language of God giving us a gift and Paul is telling Timothy to just grab onto it and don't let it go. And this is, uh, this is what faith is. Faith is trust and confidence in God. It's grabbing onto the promises and clinging to the promises of God that despite our circumstances, despite what's happening, we are holding on to God. We are holding on to what he has said about us. So this provision, this time, this talent, this resource that God gives us, that God promises to us, it's not there to make us comfy. It's not there to make us happy. It's there to help us exercise our faith and to live kingdom lives, be part of this new creation. So this is what we see this morning. God makes promises in order to transform us for kingdom life. God is on a mission, the train is moving. God is recreating the world. That's his goal, is recreating new heaven and new earth where his people can live with him forever. The train's moving. And so all the promises he gives us in scripture are for us to take part in the new creation. And we get to do it now. He gives us promises now that we get to experience righteousness and godliness and faith and love and endurance and gentleness now. We don't have to wait till we're dead. Those are promises to us now. 
The train's moving, and we can either cling on with our faith, or we're just going to get run over by it. Because God's not going to stop for us. He's going to invite us onto the train. And we can grab on, we can cling on with faith, or we can be run over by his mission. And so faith clings on to the promises of God, and we get to experience so much of this eternal life now. God loves you so much. He loves you so much. But that doesn't mean he wants you comfortable. It means he wants you transformed. He wants all the good things he has for you. And he's offering it to you. So my encouragement to you is to grab on. Hold on. Fight the good fight. Exercise your faith. And take hold of eternal life that starts now. Amen? Amen. Amen.